So when, when I think about this election, we have to think about it in various different scenarios based on the two outcomes. I understand, Mike, that you're, you're holding um, a particular view, um, but obviously there's going to be ramifications for the view that you have. So uh, a few days ago, I had, after watching the second debate, I think it became quite clear that my playbook, if Biden were to win this election, is to think about shorting the oil complex uh, thinking about longing renewables. This is strictly based on the dialectic and narrative that he has been highlighting throughout like the debates and some of the key campaign points. I would consider shorting the dollar against the majors, which would then be strong for precious metals. I would expect a softer tone towards China. So I would think about Chinese equities in that instance, particularly like the major large caps. And I would consider... Um, shorting domestic brick and mortar uh, companies as it relates to retail. Um, one thing also that's clear is that irrespective of whomever wins this election, I think the key impact is that you could expect to see the economies gradually opening up. I think that everything right now is literally on lockdown until there is some kind of conclusion post-election. So it's quite an interesting time that we're at. I don't think that both sides are willing to basically work with each other in order to ensure that there is a full reopening of the economy. And I would expect that all the fear-mongering that is happening towards, like, let's say, one side is actually going to change because it would be imperative for them to say that assuming if they hypothetically win, that, hey, look, we now recovered the economy. I think that when you take a look at the recent GDP figures, you see this massive volatility. You see basically a decline of GDP at all-time lows, and then after you see a rise of GDP at all-time highs relative to what you would see, let's say, in a place like China, which is much more... Um, conducive of slow growth. Although I would caution the audience when thinking about GDP growth in China and understand that effectively it was more accounting tactics that allowed them to present uh, somewhat of growth within their most recent quarter figure. They simply adjusted uh, a decline in their fixed asset investments and then basically we're able to exacerbate their GDP growth. It's imperative for us to understand the difference between economic structures of places like China, which is represented by the state at approximately, let's say, upwards towards 80% of GDP. So entire, what you could have is an entire economy that's been locked down and shut or basically the average person, which is making a very minuscule amount of GDP per capita relative to the developed West, um, which is probably much more of an accurate representation. So long story short is that I feel like the audience and the panelists shouldn't be uh, skewed by various different narratives from the perspective of what's good leadership in this environment versus bad leadership in the environment because you have to take into account the first off the fact that the united states is the largest economy in the world and the freest economy in the world plays a big role relative to what you see uh, the world over so 
all you need to do is think about the possible permutations of what could happen um, based on the election outcome, understand some of the key points that some of these candidates are presenting, and be able to basically set a trajectory of where you want to go. And as Mike indicated, there's going to be some long-standing ramifications. The very fact that I can't be in Singapore and I have to do this conference online is almost an indication of NASDAQ. Um, I would just add one more thing as, as it relates to the U.S. dollar, is that um, for all commodity bulls, I would be cognizant of the fact that there is an expected $21 trillion of U.S. debt outstanding that is due for maturity within the next 24 months. So I would expect that the U.S. dollar post-election going into the end of the year, um, expect to see a lot of credit default happening. And you see that's on an uptick as far as the high yield um, space is concerned. So you see an uptick there. And then imagine the potential possibilities of sovereign defaults that are happening the world over as the Fed had injected billions and trillions of dollars uh, the world over besides just within the United States alone. So that's why you see year to date that the U.S. dollar is still up basically almost half a percent relative to all the swings that happened. And you should consider the fact that the U.S. dollar was up basically going into this crisis uh, that had happened. When we take a look at this COVID situation, I think that this has provided, if, if you're interested in commodities or equities or the economy in general, this has been probably single-handedly one of the greatest opportunities to study supply and demand ever before, particularly when the state, the world over, has basically shut down demand and even basically uh, put a blockade on what is available for supply uh, through categorization such as essential or non-essential items or jobs or people, which has ultimately affected the entire economy and the equity market. I think that when we are looking at this COVID situation, I think that, like Mike said, is that time is going to play a factor. But I would point out the fact that there have been cases economies, mind you, they, uh, they might be small, that have kind of just gone through this whole 2020, still trying to be as open as possible. Although the predicament is that even if one was to have been open this whole period of time, if let's say trade, if tourism, if hospitality still is playing a big role within your economy, obviously you will be affected. I look at places like Sweden, I look at places like Taiwan that have been open. Um, interestingly, Taiwan now is setting the record for basically death rates as far as like basically, what is it, several hundred days without any COVID cases. And Sweden now basically has, an all, is the low, has the lowest death rates in all of Europe. So what is so fascinating about this situation um, especially since our world has been obsessed with uh, accreditation titles and experts. We have now seen that the emperor has no clothes whatsoever, is bare naked as it comes to expert opinions, expert advice. I'm sure that probably 90% of what's going to be said in this panel is going to be completely 
invalid. And what's been so fascinating is to watch people that are doing the exact opposite. I believe we live in a world of inversion now where what you think is right is actually wrong and what is perceived as wrong is actually right. And because we live in this world of inversion, you are now seeing economies, policymakers, um, sectors and industries that are actually doing well, but the narrative based on, let's say, the media is to project them as actually doing things that are wrong. But the great fascinating thing about, like, again, economic indicators is the very fact that you can actually measure some of these uh, predicaments that are happening. So I, I want to just jump for a second into this whole uh, commodity issue. Now, I believe it was about maybe last year at the same um, event, I actually was saying it's time to long silver. I'm sure Daniel has a recording of that somewhere when it was actually unpopular to do so. And long story short, the way I look at commodities is I take a look at the, the symbiosis between uh, the miners, the producers, and the spot price itself. Because basically CFOs and executive officers take a cue of price to determine what their investments are going to be in the future. Now, What's fascinating is based on this COVID time where you have like lockdowns, you are starting to see major miners, major oil producers re-examine how they're going to invest. They're maybe actually thinking about a decline of investments. So when you think about the fact that supply for commodities potentially in the future might not be able to fulfill the need of demand, assuming that things are looking relatively okay, let's say on an industrial basis, you could see these spikes in prices, but not in 2020. Expect to see that maybe two or three years down the line as an average figure that I use when I think about basically below ground supply and the time it takes for it to become above ground in whatever like metal that you're interested in, let's say an average between three to five years. So when you're looking at supply and demand, you could see relative demand based on the fact that the state will now open up the economy. So that should help prices a little bit. And then by the time that supply, I can only measure basically below ground supply relative to above ground supply starts to enter the market. That's when you'll see the, the crosshairs between supply and demand. So, so don't expect to see gold to reach $5,000 anytime soon. You could see that potentially three or four years from now, potentially probably into that next election. How, about silver? Um, How long did it for silver to get to 50 hours an ounce? Back to the highs. I think it's the same thing. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, there's a correlation between the two. So when I was buying silver, I was literally at this event last year buying physical silver and putting it at a single. So uh, what's storage. your outlook for next year? Next year. My, my outlook for next year is this, is that I think that there's going to be a lot of defaults. And a lot of those defaults are going to be in U.S. dollars that is going to accentuate the significance of the dollar relative to everything else. Do not forget the fact that trade war ultimately means that that, let's say, $500 billion surplus that China generates is in U.S. dollar. And they crave U.S. dollar more than anything else. All economies in the world, because it's newsflash, it's the world reserve currency, all these economies function off the U.S. dollar. Think about it. China's like 
let's say, a $12, $13 trillion economy, right? But all of that is in renminbi. Only, let's say, that surplus of trade is in US dollar, which is what they use to purchase all the commodities that you guys are talking about. So be cognizant of that. You, at the end of the day, you could argue that, well, I'm in Vietnam, right? So let's say it's estimated that GDP is several hundred billion. That's, that's irrelevant to the fact that it's like a closed society. I use the analogy like some of these economies are like casinos, right? You can only use the chips when you're in China. You can only use renminbi primarily when you're in China. You step right. out of China, you can't use it anywhere else. And the only thing you can use is basically US dollar. That is why trade and this trade war is such a big issue. At the end of the day, it's only 500 billion for apparently the second largest economy in the world. It means more to China than it does the United States. I, I would consider this, I would consider um, our, our awareness of technological disruption is going to play a big role in the commodity space. Does it mean, imply that you need to go to Venus and Jupiter? Not necessarily. It, we simply need to look at how the fracking industry basically revolutionized the extraction process for oil and gas, right? Technology is demonstrating that we live in a world of abundance as opposed to that of scarcity, assuming that we're using technology for the right purposes. Um, I've seen a few comments on the Q&A section about like carbon emissions overall. I just want to add the fact that, you know, if one does a very careful, I don't want to get really deep into this, but simply, I think that overall, very few people lack multidisciplinary skills to be able to make the right decisions that are appropriate for anything that we're ultimately doing, just like that of like COVID, right? People are saying, we have people even in this panel saying like, oh, how amazing Asia has done as far as cases are concerned without even thinking about the economic ramifications or at least the total economic ramifications for the populace of these countries. So going back to this whole point about, you know, mining and stuff like that. I think that we need to start to understand like the environment better. Our whole understanding towards CO2 emissions and blaming that on the oil industry might be incorrect, just like um, our over emphasis on the, the impact that COVID is having on basically the health system might be over uh, exaggerated. So I think that it's until we truly understand how all these things work. So I, I just, long story short is I'm about to release a piece about how carbon is created and how it's created underneath the soil and how it takes a few decades for it to form into something. It could be um, a metal, it could be oil. And it strictly is about how we're using our topsoil, which is basically being destroyed through our agricultural uh, processes at the current moment. So long story short is that before we consider to do anything as it relates to intergalactic travel, before we think about anything as it relates to shutting down the whole entire economy um, based on our concerns of global warming, we need to take into account how much global warming is actually impacting the environment by the way, it's actually 0.8 degrees within the last 120 years. And therefore, perhaps there are much more efficient solutions that are found literally on our soil. And I'm going to be releasing a piece like that. It's, it connects on how states develop based on the ability to extract yield, crop yield, for the purposes of taxation. So we'll talk about that after. I just want to jump on to the trade war thing for a second, is that um, sure. there's this whole narrative on how basically... Um, 
nothing has developed out of the trade war. And if you are strictly about the end results, then you may be correct. But if you are about the journey, which is what everyone should be about, as opposed to thinking about the outcomes all the time, considering that there are so many different variables that impact the outcome, we need to think about what has ultimately happened. The United States was in the process of basically having massive trade deficits, as we all know. Now, the thing is this is that imagine if you're negotiating with an authoritarian regime. What the hell are you going to do? The best you can do is say, hey, maybe you guys should consider working with us towards trade. You can't force them, but what you now have is a proof of concept about their level of commitment towards something like a trade deal. Now, I would want to point something out. Now, the trade targets uh, apparently right now up to like, let's say November are only 50% of the actual targets. But if you take a look at U.S. imports during this duration, they are in lockstep with that of what China is also importing as well. So maybe let's say the initial target was like several hundred billion, let's say for this year. Even if it's not, let's say it's 30 or 50 or 100 billion, it's still in line on a relative basis towards what China is doing. So what, what, what has that administration done? They looked at how much China is purchasing from the United States, albeit they might not be meeting their targets, but then the United States has then replied by saying, okay, we'll match you based on supply and demand free market forces by basically aligning our balance of trade with you. So no one talks about that as far as the media is concerned. You are strictly focused on the fact that, oh, you said you're going to do this and it didn't happen. I get that. But one thing that you're able to do, which China cannot hide from, is that when you use free market forces such as supply and demand in international trade, that becomes extremely transparent about what they're doing. And for people to then not say that, hey, maybe there's a problem with this market participant. Imagine if you went onto the stock exchange and you had a guy that was manipulating the price of the stock on the NASDAQ. Basically, the SEC would come in, it would be all over the news, and that person would be criminalized for what they've done. Now, it, as opposed to that, what are you doing? You're saying, oh, this administration failed. Well, they didn't do anything illegal, guys. They basically said, hey, let's try to think about trade. And by the way, no one's talking about the totality of trade. No one's talking about the fact that China's spending less on buying U.S. assets. Maybe that's a good thing too. But we're all focused on these basic narratives that are not designed for people on our panel, but maybe the average person. And, and I think that once we start to understand the numbers and assess totality versus like what's actually happening, then we'll be able to think about these issues deep, much deeper. So all of you guys are experts, but that doesn't imply that any of you guys have wisdom. I meet a bunch of man-childs in our world, and they are unable to ascertain what's really happening and make wise decisions, as opposed to using just one minuscule data point and basically basing their whole thesis about life, politics, and economics based on one data point that doesn't take into account okay. everything. As you know, financialization is what's causing the stagnation. Irrespective of that, you're going to basically get inflows into 
asset classes such as gold. But you got to understand that there's going to be inflows and outflows. If you're going to see a risk on environment, you're going to see a bunch of outflows. I think that what gold bulls need to do is think about the layers of capital, right? The the risk capital, the long money, the the physical guys in totality to get some kind of fair assessment on what the actual price of gold would be. I would point out one key thing that you guys needed to consider is the fact that why are these asset classes or emerging markets basically making all-time highs in the ninth inning? We need to have these asset classes making all-time highs, let's say in the fifth inning or the sixth inning or the bottom of the seventh. Technology is going to play obviously a really big role over, I guess, now to the end of days, right? The, the key aspect here is to think about like the opportunities that lie within technology, right? Uh, to be honest with you, my favorite asset class is content, okay? It's something that is light. Um, it generates revenue. It's something that people need to consume, and it's highly undiscussed about. I mean, a great sample size is basically looking at companies like Netflix, um, the, basically the recomposition of Disney. Okay, so I just want to highlight about the asset class that I like in particularly. I think again, um, what I was trying to say last time was that through our understanding, through the advancement of science and technology, we're going to start to identify new opportunities that exist. Okay. So when we're talking about the commodity space overall, I, again, I think that people are not aware about how commodities we're aware, but we're not contributing to actually the development and creation of commodities that could actually start to appear and manifest itself under our soil over a duration of like several decades. I believe that this is going to have a major impact on overall supply and demand, number one. Number two is this is that, again, many of these commodity speculators are not doing an accurate approach towards assessing supply and demand. I heard previously you guys were referring to like China. Well, the only thing that you get is the official data about what China is importing, but that's it. You don't know about what the consumer is demanding. And from what I understand is that China's working towards reducing the savings rate to get the consumer to spend a little bit more to bolster the economy, to offset basically their ability to trade. So we need to take everything again into totality. And the only data that I have is I have Chinese imports and I have a savings rate. So again, what we need to do is I don't think we have an appropriate understanding. I don't think the answer is basically sending rockets up into space. I think the key thing is that we need to basically sit down and figure out all these changes that are happening, find the most effective solutions, how it will improve um, different uh, situations of commodities. Um, are there new means to generate energy? Are there new means to uh, find and source some of these commodities before we talk about a world of scarcity? And this is the opportunity to do so.